Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcast commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Avast. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. The big story today is the huge market collapse on Thursday, which more than reversed the relief rally that we had on Wednesday following the FOMC decision to raise interest rates by 50 basis points and to take a 75 basis point rate hike for future meetings off the table. The markets originally interpreted that as good news, but then they had a chance to think about it again and it became bad news. I don't think it really mattered. The markets are headed lower for reasons that really have nothing to do with whether or not the Fed is going 50 or 75 basis points because either hike is inadequate for the task at hand. It doesn't matter. It's too little too late. 50, 75, 100, the Fed is not in a position to raise interest rates anywhere near enough to slow down inflation. But any attempt to raise interest rates, even slightly, will prick the bubble, which it's already done, and the air is coming out. So the Fed will succeed in killing the economy, but it will not kill inflation. Inflation is going to live on and get stronger. But looking at what happened to the market on Thursday, the Dow lost over 1,000 points, 1,063 points. That was a 3.12% decline. The NASDAQ did even worse. It was down 5%. 
And in fact, intraday, it was down 6%. So it did finish off the lows. But both those indexes were at their lowest levels since November of 2020. And these were the biggest single day losses since 2020, which of course was the COVID sell-off. S&P 500 down better than 3.5%. It was the second worst day of the year for the S&P. In fact, this was the longest losing streak for the S&P 500 since June of 2011. There were so many debacles, it's hard to focus in on just a few, but two high-profile stocks that blew up were Etsy and eBay, which were down 16.8 and 11.7% respectively, hitting 52-week lows. Stocks decline again today, but these are companies that sell stuff online And obviously, they don't sell food, they don't sell gasoline. And so when people are spending so much money on basic necessities, they don't have money left over to buy somebody's used clothes on eBay or whatever they buy on Etsy. I've never actually been on that site, but I know whatever they're buying, they don't have the extra money. And so these companies are missing on their revenues, they're having to guide lower, and the stocks are getting clobbered. In fact, speaking about a stock getting clobbered, look at Shopify. They happen to advertise on my show and they're also feeling the pinch because consumers, again, don't have the money to shop on Shopify. So that stock was down 15% on Thursday. They missed on the top and the bottom lines. But there are so many other stocks that were down around 10% or more than 10%. Stocks are getting obliterated. In particular, the stocks that have anything to do with crypto, blockchain, Bitcoin, and those stocks got hammered again today, even more so than the market. Now, the market did manage to finish off the lows. We were down again today. In fact, the Dow was down for its sixth consecutive week. It wasn't a big decline, but it still goes down as a decline because we had such big gains in the first three days of the week that even though we had a collapse on Thursday and more declines today, we were collapsing from a big rally. So the net impact on the week was not that dramatic, but I think technically it was extremely weak and I think it portends further downside. I thought it was crazy. After the close, the talking heads on CNBC We're talking about how investors should go home happy over the weekend because they took a lot of solace in the fact that the Dow managed to close down just under 100 points when it was down about 500 points at one point. And somehow they think that's a sign of a bottom. I mean, there is nothing to hang your hat on if you're looking for a bottom. The technical picture is bleak and the fundamental picture is even bleaker. There is no reason to believe this rally off the lows would constitute a bottom. We're nowhere near a bottom. We're still much closer to the top than the bottom unless the Fed does a complete about face, which it might do in order to stop the carnage. But as long as the Fed is going to continue to pretend that it's going to fight inflation, the market's going to keep going down. Now, at some point, maybe the markets will figure out that the Fed is pretending, but clearly they haven't figured that out yet. They believe the Fed is going to do what the Fed claims it's going to do, even though what it claims is impossible, especially given what it's saying it's going to do, which is maybe raise interest rates up to two and a half, three percent Even if they do that, it's wholly inadequate to bring down an inflation rate that officially is eight or nine percent, but 
unofficially, in reality, is probably closer to twice that level. There is no way the Fed is going to be able to succeed. But what it is succeeding in doing by pretending it can fight inflation is crashing the stock market. So on the week, the Dow was down just about one quarter of 1%, but the index is now down 11% from its peak, so barely into correction territory. The S&P 500 also barely down on the week, about 0.2%, now down 14.4% from its high. But the real carnage is in the small caps and the tech-heavy NASDAQ. Russell 2000 down 1.3% on the week, making a new low for the year today on Friday. And the Russell 2000 now down just over 25% from its high, 25.2%. That is the biggest drop of any of the indexes. And again, that is the index most closely correlated with the U.S. economy. Everybody is talking about how strong the economy is. Well, all the evidence actually points to a weak economy that everybody wants to ignore. Even the Russell 2000 can smell that weakness. The NASDAQ composite dropped 1.5% on the week. It's now down 24.3% from its lows, and it did make a new low for the year on Friday. But if you look at the more speculative names of the NASDAQ, the ones that Kathy Wood owns in the ARK Innovation ETF, that ETF was down 3.2% on the week. New 52-week low today. That ETF is now down 71.2% from its highs. Now, I remember talking about it on this podcast when it was down 30 or 40%. And a lot of people were saying, oh, it's a good time to buy. It's on sale. The bottom is in. And I kept saying that we have a long way to drop. Well, we've dropped a long way, but you know what? We still have a long way to go. There is no bottom anywhere in sight in this ETF. And most of the shareholders have yet to abandon ship. Wait till you see what happens to this fund when the people who have invested finally want their money back, when they finally had enough of the losses and decide they want to get back what's left of what they invested, then you're going to see some real selling. Look at what happened to crypto. Bitcoin got clobbered on Thursday, although it's still hanging out around 36,000 as I'm recording this podcast on Friday afternoon. It's slightly below at 35,990. But Bitcoin is actually holding up a lot better than I expected. I would have thought the price would have already been lower. Now, one of the things I'm thinking might be happening is a lot of the whales are really trying to prop up Bitcoin because the last thing they want is Bitcoin to crash. So I think they're doing everything they can to stop that from happening. In fact, what some people might be doing is selling off their crypto-related stocks. Maybe that's one of the reasons these stocks are getting clobbered, like Coinbase and MicroStrategy. These stocks now are getting obliterated. Coinbase was down another 9% on Friday. It was down close to 9% on the week, and it's now down 72% from its high last year. MicroStrategy, that's Michael Saylor's company that has a bunch of Bitcoin on its balance sheet, it was down 7.4% on Friday. It was down 17% on the week, and it's now off 67% from its high. I think what might be happening is a lot of these whales in crypto probably also have some pretty substantial positions in crypto-related stocks, and maybe they're unloading some of those stocks 
to get money to use that money to buy some Bitcoin to prop up the price. Although I'm not really sure you actually need money to prop up Bitcoin because you can prop it up with fake money using Tether. But clearly, if all of these crypto-related companies are imploding, that is a huge red flag that these coins are going to go down too. For some reason, they're holding up better than the stocks, but the stocks are a clear leading indicator. A crash is imminent in crypto, including Bitcoin. It's just a matter of time, and it's not going to be a lot of time. And in fact, this sector being so weak is really starting to reveal all of this investment as malinvestment. All of these companies that started up in blockchain and crypto Almost all these companies are going to go out of business. All of their workers are going to get laid off. And when they do get laid off, how are they going to pay the bills? Well, they're going to sell their crypto. Because I think most of the people who work in blockchain-related companies, they've totally drank the Kool-Aid. They're all in. They work in crypto. They keep all their money in crypto. They're going down with the ship. And when they lose their jobs, and now they have to figure out how to pay their bills, and the only thing they have to sell are Bitcoin and other tokens, well, that's what they're going to sell. So this whole thing is going to unravel. Meanwhile, shares of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust were down 5.2% on the week. Shares are now down 57% from their high. But more importantly, look at the discount. GBTC is trading at a 25% discount to its NAV. All of its NAV is just the Bitcoin that it owns, Think about that. Why would anybody buy Bitcoin when you can just buy the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust and get your Bitcoin 25% off? Because you actually end up getting 35% more Bitcoin for your money. So why buy Bitcoin directly when for the same amount of money, you can get 35% more coins? Now, some people might say, well, you got to pay 2% a year in management fees. Yes, but how many years do you have to own it before that 2% equals the 35% extra Bitcoin that you got by buying the Grayscale Trust? So that is a huge competition for Bitcoin. And so the Grayscale Trust has to draw demand away from Bitcoin. It is a big Bitcoin competitor. And unlike in the past when it traded at a premium, none of the money going into the Grayscale Trust is going to go into Bitcoin. Because the money is not going to Grayscale. The money is going to the other shareholders that want out. But then you have to ask yourself this. Why are GBTC shareholders so desperate to get rid of their Grayscale trust that they're willing to accept a 25% discount to get out? That tells you that the demand is waning, especially from the institutions. Because it's the institutions who got in and now it's the institutions who want out. And all of the incremental demand for Grayscale was supposed to come from institutions, yet they don't want to buy GBTC, even though they can get a 25% discount. So this proves that the bubble has popped and the air is coming out. The problem is you still have so many hodlers who can't see this. They're just going to go down with this ship. There is no talking sense into them. I feel bad for them, and I'm doing everything I can to warn them but sometimes, you know, you can drag a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Now, it wasn't just Bitcoin that went down. Gold went down too, but it was only down 15 bucks on the week. It's not like gold got clobbered. And in fact, in every other currency, 
gold went up. It only went down in dollar terms, but if you measure it in euros or pounds or yen or Aussie dollars or Canadian dollars, the price of gold was up. Gold stocks, on the other hand, went down. They didn't get destroyed, although many of the silver stocks really got clobbered. I mean, it was a lot of indiscriminate selling, and I think there's a lot of really good buys. Those stocks are trading, some of them, close to their lows of the year. But the GDX, which is the senior gold producers, was only down about 2% on the week. And the index is now 18% from its high. So almost a bear market. It made a new high. What was it a few weeks ago? It made a new 52-week high. And now it's been clobbered. The juniors, the GDXJ, that had a bigger decline on the week, down 3.5%. That index is now in a bear market, down 26% from its highs. But the fact that gold is not going up, the fact that gold stocks are going down, the fact that the dollar went up, the dollar index was up another 0.7% or so on the week. It closed at 103.66. The fact that you're seeing a strong dollar and that you're not seeing a flight into gold, you're not seeing a big rise in these mining stocks, that shows you that investors still don't get it. They still think the Fed is going to succeed in its inflation fight. They just think they're going to have to fight harder. They just think that maybe the Fed is falling further behind the curve. And so now it's going to have to raise rates even more in order to contain inflation. What the markets still don't get is the Fed is never going to contain inflation. It has no ability to do it. It has no real desire to do it, but it can't admit that. So it is bluffing. Look, I said this From the beginning, when the Fed initially said, Powell came out and said that he was going to break from tradition. He was not going to do what central bankers have historically done, and that was act preemptively. He did not want to anticipate the potential for inflation and to raise rates in advance of that as insurance because he didn't want to damage the economy. What Powell said was better was to err on being too loose. And if for some reason inflation ended up being higher than the Fed thought, well, that would be a good problem to have because the Fed knows how to solve high inflation. You just raise rates. And of course, I said, what is this guy smoking? That is the worst possible problem for the Fed to have because they can't raise rates because thanks to the Fed, we've all got so much debt that we can't handle higher rates. But that is what the Fed said. Now, I said at the time, the reason the Fed was going for a Hail Mary on transitory and the reason it didn't want to raise interest rates to take on some insurance just in case inflation wasn't transitory was because the Fed knew at the time that if the Fed acted preemptively to prevent inflation from breaking out, it would have crushed the economy because I think the Fed realized how much debt the economy had and how much damage an inflation fight would do. Well, if the Fed wasn't willing to do what it took to preemptively stop inflation from breaking out, why does anybody think they're going to do what it takes now to put the inflation genie back in the bottle? When what they would have to do now is so much more aggressive than what they didn't want to do back then. And the amount of damage that they would inflict on the economy is so much greater than the damage they didn't want to inflict earlier, which is why they didn't do anything. If the Fed wasn't prepared to stop inflation, they're surely not prepared to fight inflation because what they would have to do now would 
resulted so much more damage to the economy than the damage that they didn't want to do when they had the opportunity. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So all of this is just a bluff. The markets haven't figured it out. Now, the bond market is continuing to fall. In fact, all of the yields hit new highs across the board on treasuries. The yield on the five-year treasury closed at 3-spot 043, 10-year 3-spot 123, 30-year 3-spot 221. These are the highest closes since before the pandemic. No inversion, right? We do have a normal sloping yield curve from the fives out to the 30s now, I think the yield curve should steepen quite a bit more. You know, a lot of people are certain that what bonds are doing is pricing in rate hikes. Well, what if they're not really pricing in rate hikes? What if bonds are pricing in inflation? Because it makes more sense that bonds are going up because inflation is going up, not because the Fed is hiking short-term rates, because these are long-term rates. And if the Fed hikes short-term rates, and we go into recession, well, then the long-term rates might not have to go up. But if what the bond market is smelling is the stench of inflation, that is the problem. And if the bond market is pricing at inflation, not rate hikes, the bond market has a lot further to go down and interest rates have a lot further to go up because inflation is going to move up a lot more than interest rates. In fact, look at the price of oil. It was up again on Friday. In fact, it was up about 5% on the week, or around $110 a barrel. Oil prices are higher today than they were when Biden announced that the U.S. was going to be dumping oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So as consumer prices keep rising, real interest rates are going to keep falling because the Fed is going to fall further and further behind the curve as it drags its feet with these 50 basis point rate hikes in a world where inflation is accelerating at a faster pace. And by the way, look at mortgage rates now. I think we're at 5.4% for the national average, maybe even a little higher than that for a 30-year fixed. We could be at 6% by next week. Now, 6% mortgages, historically speaking, that's not that high. But based on the experience that Americans have had since the 2008 financial crisis, that's a big number. And especially when you had mortgage rates around 3% a year ago, you're doubling the mortgage rate. That has a massive impact on affordability that drains purchasing power from homeowners who have to now pay a mortgage rate double what they would have paid a year ago. Remember, there are a lot of adjustable rate mortgages. A lot of people have you know, five-year arms. They're still very popular. 
a lot of those arms are resetting and they're resetting in a much higher interest rate environment than when they were originally taken out. And that's going to be a shock for the homeowners when they see how much their mortgage payment goes up. And again, nobody can refinance. The refi market is completely gone. Nobody has a mortgage that is higher than the current rate. So nobody will refinance, which means that lifeline is severed. Households have been refinancing their mortgages, serial refis, in order to reduce payments and maybe even extract a little equity along the way. Now they can't do that. That has been shut off. They're stuck with these high balances because they've refinanced so many times. They've never even paid down any of their principal. And now mortgage rates are much higher. Even if they have a fixed rate locked in, they're stuck. And you know, a lot of people, if they want to move, they can't. Because if you sell the house you have and buy another house, your mortgage isn't portable nor is your mortgage assumable. If somebody buys your house, they can't take over your mortgage. They need to get a new mortgage. So a lot of people are going to be stuck in their homes, even if they want to move, because the only mortgage they can afford is the one they've already got. So if they sell their house in order to buy a bigger house, they're going to have a higher mortgage payment and they probably can't afford that. So a lot of people are going to be trapped because they don't want to give up the low rates that they've got. You know, one of the things that I thought was pretty funny, I was listening on CNBC today on Friday, and these guys are trying to come up with explanations for why the market sold off so sharply on Thursday. And apparently they had an interview with David Tepper, Appaloosa. Uh, He's a big hedge fund guy. And he came out with some thoughts. And his take was that the reason the market went down was because investors are worried that the Fed is falling behind the curve that it shouldn't have taken the 75 basis point rate hike off the table. And because they did that, that's why the market sold off because they think, oh, now the Fed isn't going to raise rates enough and inflation is going to go out of control. I don't think there's a chance that that's the reason. In fact, the reason we got that thousand point rally on Wednesday was because they took the 75 basis points off the table. I think if Powell had come out and said, we're probably going to do 75 basis points, the markets would have tanked immediately. We wouldn't have had a one-day rally. The markets would have gone down. I think the market would be lower now had the Fed left the 75 basis points on the table. It's just that even the smart money still doesn't get what's going on here because it's much bigger than just the reality of the inflation that we see in the moment. Because what we're experiencing are all the inflation chickens coming home to roost. And they're just starting. And there's a lot of chickens out there. And the Fed began releasing them in 2009. That's why I was opposing QE1 from the beginning. I opposed TARP, the bailouts, for a lot of reasons. But the most important reason was that I knew that once the Fed went down this misguided path, there was no turning back. Once it committed to this monetary policy, it was a monetary roach motel. The Fed could check us in, but they could never check us out. That's why I knew we would have a never-ending string of QE because the Fed would never be able to take the punch bowl away because of the damage that would ensue when the high wore off and everybody sobered up. Because I knew that they were letting this inflation genie out of the bottle and it took 10 years and you had guys like Paul Krugman doing these premature victory laps saying, see guys like Peter Schiff who said QE would cause inflation. See, they were wrong. We didn't have any inflation. 
I didn't say QE would cause inflation. I said QE was inflation and that inflation would cause rising prices. And it did. It's just that for years, we didn't measure prices properly because we had a rig CPI, but also a lot of the inflation caused asset prices to go up. That's why stock prices went up. That's why bond prices, that's why real estate prices went up. It was inflation that was driving all those prices up. But I always said that at the end of the day, all the inflation was going to ultimately end up in consumer goods. And that's where we are. And I think putting the inflation into overdrive during COVID really accelerated the process. And finally, we got to where I've been warning we would be. We are at the point now where we have an intractable inflation problem and the Fed can't do anything about it. And it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. There is no way to stop it, no way that the Fed is willing to do because they would have to create a worse financial crisis than the one they created in 2008. That's the irony of it. The Fed created the 2008 financial crisis by keeping interest rates artificially low. Then when we had the crisis, they swept it under a rug of inflation. They printed all this money so we wouldn't have to deal with the consequences of the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, we dealt with some of the consequences, but not all of them because we got all the bailouts and stimulus. Well, because they kept interest rates even lower, even longer after the 2008 financial crisis than before, what we're about to suffer, the crisis that we're headed for is going to be much worse than the one they covered up with inflation. And in fact, the crisis is inflation. All of the inflation that they created to ease the pain in 2008, that's the pain that we're going to be dealing with and it's going to be excruciating. It would have been much better had we dealt with the pain back then. But of course, the politicians didn't care about that. Bush didn't care about that. They wanted to push it out to after the election. And then of course, when Obama came in, he didn't want any pain. He just wanted to take credit for some type of economic recovery, but we never recovered from anything. With the help of the Fed, all we did is blow an even bigger bubble than the one that popped in 2008. And now we're dealing with the consequences. But it's the consequences of the Fed, of the Fed's mismanagement of monetary policy. They created these problems. And now we're going to have to suffer the consequences of their incompetence. In fact, one of the good things about what's about to happen is I think all credibility for the Federal Reserve and other central banks is going to be over. Because I think the most incompetent economists in the world are the ones that work at central banks. Now, there's a lot of other incompetent economists working in academia, working for government, working for Wall Street firms. But certainly the worst economists out there are the ones that are at the central banks. And those are the ones that everybody thinks are the best. Look at what happened with the Bank of England. They raised interest rates too on Thursday by 25 basis points. There were some governors that wanted a 50 basis point hike, but they raised them 25 basis points to 1%. That's it. I mean, inflation is almost 10% over there in the UK and they're raising rates to 1%. See, the problem is 1% is a 13 year high. That tells you something. The Bank of England has kept interest rates below 1% for 13 years. And now they have an enormous inflation problem. And what's their response? Let's hike rates 25 basis points to 1%. That is going to do nothing to slow down inflation in the UK. Look, inflation is happening all over the world. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in Japan. It's not just here. Because all of these central bankers have made the same mistake. They continue to make the same mistakes. 
and the people are going to suffer the consequences of this incompetence. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Now you can enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected and do it on your own terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Some of the features include award-winning antivirus that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices and data breach monitoring that enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether your past words need to be changed. Also, firewall protection. You can keep personal information secure and prevent attacks that seek to access your computers and steal your data. You'll also get ransomware protection. You can secure your personal photos, documents, and other files from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware attacks. It'll even speed up your PC by helping you optimize the background activity of your apps. There's also a smart scan. It'll help you find and remove viruses and resolve the most common privacy performance issues. Avast One offers both free and premium options. I've been using Avast One to protect my devices for years. In fact, Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cyber crimes. You can learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Going back to the catalyst for the huge drop in the stock market on Thursday, while everybody else was looking for something to blame it on, the elephant in the room that nobody really discussed was the Q1 non-farm productivity numbers. Because for all the coverage that inflation gets, and it gets a lot of coverage, even though it doesn't get a lot of understanding, at least the media is talking about it, you would think that they would have focused heavily on these productivity numbers because productivity is key to prices. Because if workers are more productive, if they can produce more output for less input, that can keep a lid on prices. Increasing productivity brings prices down. Now, when governments create inflation, they print more money, that pushes prices up, but increasing productivity can counteract the effects of inflation and keep prices down. So if you're worried about rising prices, productivity is key. That's why this report should have been given a lot of attention, especially given how bad it was, but it was barely mentioned. And this may have been a catalyst for the big decline on Thursday, because maybe some investors actually understood the implications of this report and sold stocks and bonds as a result. The expectation for Q1, and this is the preliminary estimate, so it's likely to be revised, but the expectation was for productivity to drop at an annualized rate of 2.5%. And that would have followed a pretty big gain in the fourth quarter of 2021, which saw a 6.6% rise in productivity. Well, that increase was downwardly revised to 6.3, but the Q1 number came out at minus 7.5. That is the biggest drop in productivity in a quarter since 1947. I mean, that's just a couple of years after the end of the Second World War. That's how far back you have to go to see a quarter with that big a drop in non-farm productivity. And the big factor driving the decrease was the surge in labor costs. In the fourth quarter of 2021, we had a 1% increase 
in unit labor costs. That was an upward revision from the 0.3% rise that was originally reported. The expectation for Q1 was labor costs going up by 6.8. Instead, they exploded by 11.6. Now, I know a lot of people might think, oh, isn't that good news? Unit labor cost was up. Isn't that good for workers? Well, no, because a lot of those costs don't go to the worker's paycheck. The worker just received wages. But employers incur a lot of costs to hire people. They don't pay that money to the workers. They just have to absorb the costs, whether it's taxes, insurance, complying with regulations. It costs money to hire people. And now it costs a lot more to hire people. And a lot of that ultimately has to come out of workers' pay. If it costs your employer more money to hire you, well, then your productivity needs to be high enough to offset that. Otherwise, the money's coming out of your pocket, not his. And in fact, if you look at the report itself, real wages actually tumbled by 5.5% on the quarter. And of course, they actually tumbled by more than that because they're adjusting it based on a phony inflation number. There's a lot more inflation than the government numbers acknowledge. So when they're adjusting wages by inflation, they're not using the inflation that the workers actually deal with in their normal lives, not their actual cost of living, but just the lower rate that the government wants to pretend they're living with. So this horrific report on collapsing productivity, if you think that the Fed is going to make any headway fighting inflation, they've got an uphill battle because falling productivity is making the job of fighting inflation that much more difficult. And in fact, we got a report out today that really validates the fact that wages, real wages, are falling. We got the consumer credit numbers that came out for March, and this was a shocker. And this followed a big increase in February that was also much bigger than expected, $41.9 $41.9 billion, although that got revised down to $37.7 billion. But the consensus was for an increase of $20 billion in March. Instead, consumer credit grew by a record $52.4 billion in one month. That shattered the old record. And in fact, the real culprit was credit card debt. We had a $31.4 billion surge in credit card debt on the month. That is the biggest gain in history. Now think about this. The Fed is supposedly trying to fight inflation by reducing demand. They're supposed to be trying to counteract the effects of supply shortages by cooling off the supposedly overheating economy. They're raising interest rates. Why? So they can make borrowing more expensive so that they discourage borrowing. You need less borrowing. You need less spending to try to rein in inflation. Well, consumers are borrowing more. The Fed is raising interest rates and consumers are not responding by borrowing less. They're borrowing even more. They're borrowing and spending more than ever. They don't care that the Fed has raised interest rates because they haven't raised interest rates nearly enough. Rates are still much too low, so consumers are borrowing the money. They're just paying more interest to do it, and they're spending as freely as ever. So this proves, number one, how ineffective the Fed's interest rate hikes to date have been because instead of producing less consumer 
borrowing and spending were getting more. So they're falling further and further behind the curve. But it also shows you the weakness in the economy because consumers are replacing their collapsing real incomes by going deeper into debt. They've already exhausted their savings because the savings rate has imploded, but now they're borrowing like crazy, even though interest rates have gone up because it's the only way they can pay their bills. The only way they can keep their economic necks above water is to go deeper into debt. What the Federal Reserve needs to do is increase the cost of borrowing to the point that consumers can't do that. So consumers can't keep borrowing money to buy stuff that they can't afford. Because if they can, then we're going to continue to get upward pressure on prices. Remember, inflation is an increase in the supply of money and the supply of credit. And what the Fed is focusing on by its rate hikes is credit. It's trying to restrict credit. Instead, credit is more plentiful than ever. People are borrowing more and spending more now, despite the rate hikes, than they were before the rate hikes, because the rate hikes are inadequate. And so is this 50 basis point hike. Consumers are going to keep on borrowing money. And in fact, a lot of them are borrowing money knowing they're never going to pay it back. I mean, it's just on a credit card. They'll just ultimately just default on it. There's no guarantee. There's no collateral. This is all unsecured debt. I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe the Democrats at some point are going to come up with a credit card debt forgiveness program. If they're going to forgive student debt, why not credit card debt? Why not mortgage debt? Why not auto debt? I mean, there's all sorts of debt that they could forgive. But every time they forgive debt, they're creating more inflation because the money that the borrower no longer has to spend repaying his debt, he can now spend that on brand new purchases, increasing demand, increasing upward pressure on prices. And of course, the government now runs bigger deficits because it's deprived itself of the revenue that it had when students were paying their loans. And now that money has to be printed by the Federal Reserve. Now, they haven't actually passed any student loan debt forgiveness yet, but there's a lot of political pressure. The elections are coming up. Maybe Biden is going to do it by executive order. It's great politics because you'll get a lot of votes from the people whose debt are forgiven. But of course, it's horrible for the economy because everybody whose debt is not forgiven is going to pay for it through higher inflation. And in fact, speaking about credit, I just read that the government is going to be revamping the Community Reinvestment Act. They want to make sure that banks are not discriminating against minorities or low-income borrowers and refusing to make loans. So they want to put more teeth in the Community Reinvestment Act because they're worried that the banks are discriminating. Now, first of all, banks have to discriminate. I mean, that's their job. I mean, they don't give out loans indiscriminately, but they don't discriminate based on race. They don't discriminate based on gender. They discriminate based on credit quality. You see, banks are not just in the business of making loans. They're in the business of making loans that are repaid. You see, the key to a loan is not making the loan, right? Anybody can make a loan. The key is getting your money back. That's what makes a bank a bank, right? You have loan officers. Their job is not just to make loans. Their job is to make good loans because the bank needs its money back plus interest. So the loan officers, their job is to scrutinize candidates for loans and only make loans to borrowers that they think are going to pay the money back plus interest. And if they don't think you're going to pay the money back, they shouldn't make the loan. Now, first of all, in a normal world, there is a limit 
to how much credit is available because the limit is the savings in the bank. People save and now banks loan out the savings and they want to make the best use of those savings. They want to lend it out to the people who are the most credit worthy because they have to protect the savings of their depositors, but they also want to make sure that the money goes to the people who can actually make productive use out of it and pay it back. You don't want to squander it, making loans to people who can't pay it back. But the government is upset because banks disproportionately deny loans to maybe minorities or people with lower incomes and minorities on balance tend to have lower income. So there's a lot of crossover. And so the government doesn't like that. They think that the banks are doing something wrong by discriminating against people with low incomes. They're not. That's what they're supposed to do. Because if you have a low income, it probably means that you're less likely to repay the loan because income is a good measure of your ability to repay. How much money do you earn and do you have resources to repay your debt? And so if you don't have a lot of income, you're less likely to be able to repay the loan. And so the bank is less likely to give you a loan. And that's the way it should be. But if the government is going to force banks to knowingly make loans to borrowers that they don't think can pay the money back, that does a lot of damage to the economy. First of all, it actually damages the borrowers because If borrowers don't have a lot of income, the last thing they need is to be loaded up with debt. They don't need to take out loans they can't repay and then put themselves in a financial bind. The banks are doing them a favor by denying them credit that they really can't afford. I mean, let's say somebody wants to buy a new car and they really don't have a lot of money and they're trying to get a loan and the banks turn them down. Well, that's a good thing because they shouldn't be borrowing all this money to buy a new car. Buy a cheap used car. Maybe buy a 10 or 15-year-old car. If that's all you can afford, that's what you should buy. Or what about somebody who wants to buy a house who really can't afford the house? Does the bank do you a favor if they make you a loan to buy a house you can't afford? No, you should be renting. At least when you rent a house, you know what your rent is. At least for the term of the lease, you're not going to be hit with some crazy cost. I mean, you have to fix the roof or something else. You have a landlord to take care of that stuff. So if you don't have adequate resources, if you don't have enough income, you've got no business buying a house. And so when a bank turns you down for a mortgage that you can't afford, they've actually done you a favor. But if the government is going to claim, hey, this is discrimination because a disproportionate number of these lower income borrowers happen to be minorities, and now the government is going to force the banks to make loans to people that are not going to pay them back What are the other economic consequences? Because first of all, the banks want to make money. It's not like the banks don't want to make these loans. If they're not making these loans, it's for a reason. I mean, the loan officer probably even gets paid based on loans that he originates, but there's probably also they want to make sure that the loans aren't going to go bad. But if a bank thinks it can make a profitable loan, it's going to make them. I mean, you've got all these Democrats who think businesses are so greedy, corporations are so greedy, they want to make money. Well, if they really want to make money, why would they not make a loan? I mean, if they're greedy, why not loan money to all these poor people and all these minorities if they could make money? I mean, if they could, they would make the loans. The reason they're not making the loans is because they think they'll lose money. They are doing the right thing by denying non-credit worthy borrowers 
credit. But the government wants to force them to do that. Now, you would have thought they would have learned their lesson because that was part of the problem during the housing bubble. It was banks making loans to borrowers that never should have got credit. These borrowers defaulted en masse following the 2008 financial crisis. And now they're trying to force the banks again to do the same thing. Well, who's going to pay? Well, if you force banks to make loans to borrowers who are not going to repay and the banks are going to lose, how are the banks going to recover those losses? Well, they have to recover those losses from the borrowers who do pay. And so all of the creditworthy borrowers are going to end up having to pay higher interest rates to cover all the losses that the bank is going to incur by making bad loans that the government forced them to make. But if the government didn't force them to make these bad loans, they wouldn't make them, they wouldn't lose money, and then other people who are creditworthy and can repay their loans would get a lower interest rate. But because of the government, people are going to have to pay higher costs to take out loans because they're going to have to make up for losses that governments forced these banks to incur. And in addition to those losses, the Community Reinvestment Act, there's all sorts of compliance, all sorts of regulations. It costs the banks a lot of money to prove to the government that they're not discriminating and that they're doing all this stuff to make sure that non-creditworthy borrowers get to borrow money that they can't afford to repay. All the cost of complying with these rules are built in to the cost of borrowing money, which is going up anyway because interest rates are rising. So you're just adding insult to injury. You've got borrowers having to pay higher interest rates just because of inflation or rate hikes, but you're going to be adding to that a premium because now the banks are also going to have to pass on the higher cost of not only complying with the revamped Community Reinvestment Act, but covering the losses from all the people who they're forced to loan money to under that act. If they don't pay, then the other borrowers who do pay have to pay. And finally, I want to wrap up today's podcast by talking about the April jobs report that came out earlier this morning. It kind of got lost in the shuffle. Normally, this is the big story of the day. But with all the market news going on, I think it kind of got overlooked. But before I talk about that report that came out on Friday, let's take a look at the weekly unemployment claims that we got on Thursday, because that was a bit significant in that we got 200,000 claims relative to the 178,000 that we got the week before. That is the biggest number in three months. And maybe it's the beginning of a trend. I know that I expect to see a lot of layoffs. And I think once they actually come, it's going to be an avalanche. I think at some point, there's just going to be across the board, widespread job cuts. We just don't see any evidence of it yet in these numbers, but I think it's coming. And when it comes, it's going to surprise everybody, especially the Federal Reserve. But now getting to the official non-farm payroll number, they were looking for 400,000 jobs following 431,000 jobs in March. And that March number was slightly revised down to 428,000. In fact, there were some other slight revisions downward to prior months. But the April number came in at 428,000. So that was better than estimates. The unemployment rate stayed at 3.6%. So it did not drop. But what did drop was the labor force participation rate, which was 62.4 in March. It was supposed to hold steady at that level. Instead, it declined to 62.2%. Now, to me, that's pretty significant because that's a rather large drop 
in labor force participation. And that's bad news if you're looking for workers coming off the sidelines to help fill a lot of these unfilled jobs. What that means is that there are fewer workers for employers to bid for. And so to the extent that they do need to hire somebody, they're going to have to pay more money. That is pressure on wages, which obviously is pressure on prices, which should create even more problems for the Fed and people worried about inflation. Now, we got the average hourly earnings numbers, too, which came in a little less than expected for April. They were looking for an increase of 0.4. We got 0.3, but that was offset by the upward revision to the 0.4 increase we got in March. That was revised to up 0.5. So the year-over-year increase in average hourly earnings actually ticked down. It was 5.6% in March, and now it's 5.5% in April. But of course, we know that a 5.5% increase in average hourly earnings pales in comparison to the increase in prices during the same period of time. So yes, wages are going up, but not nearly as much as prices. So workers are falling further and further behind, despite the fact that their paychecks are getting bigger. But I think to the extent that analysts looked at this as some kind of confirmation that the economy is not yet in recession because we're still not hemorrhaging jobs. I think that's false comfort. And in fact, if you look at the 428,000 jobs, I mean, who knows if these jobs were actually created? I think about 80% of those jobs were conjured into existence by way of the birth death model. So in other words, the government doesn't actually know that these jobs were created because the birth death model is an assumption. The government, when they're coming up with these statistics, they assume that new businesses were formed and they assume that those new businesses that were formed hired workers, but they don't have any actual proof that the businesses were formed or that they hired any workers. They just guess. And I think that the government bureaucrats who make these guesses are highly biased because if they believe all the hype that we have a really strong economy, well, they assume that businesses are forming in a really strong economy. But if the economy is actually in recession and these guys don't know that and they're just assuming this strong economy is leading to new businesses, well, maybe their assumptions are wrong. Maybe if they realized that we were already in a recession, they wouldn't be assuming that businesses were being born. They would assume that some of them were dying. And maybe instead of adding jobs to the report based on the businesses that they believed were created but weren't, maybe they would start subtracting jobs from the businesses that were destroyed, the ones that died that they think are still alive because of their own biased view on what they think is happening in the economy. I think there's more than enough evidence out there, the 1.4% contraction in Q1 GDP notwithstanding, that we are already in a recession. Even though we're not technically in one because we have to have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, if in fact we do get a second quarter of negative GDP growth, then the first quarter counts as the recession. And so if we get two quarters of negative GDP growth, we are in a recession right now. In fact, we would have been in a recession pretty much all year, which is similar to the situation we had back in 2008 when the Great Recession started in December of 2007. Yet in early 2008, 
all the economists, including the economists at the Fed, were saying everything was great and there was no recession anywhere in sight, even though we were already in the worst recession since the Great Depression. And if I'm right and we're already in a recession now, this recession is going to be worse than that one. In fact, this one may not be the worst recession since the Great Depression. This will be the worst recession, including the Great Depression, because it will be accompanied by very high inflation. That's why I've been calling not for stagflation, but for an inflationary depression, and we may already be in one.